The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Katie Allen. Coming up this week, Shred the Fred. As the former RBS boss is stripped of his knighthood, his replacement hands back his million pound bonus. Is hell freezing over or just the city of London? But how far should governments dictate the affairs of banks they have shares in? And have the politicians given way to a lynch mob mentality? Also this week, the stakes are high and rising around the table at the latest Eurozone summit. Can the latest deal set the continent on track to resolve its currency threatening debt crisis? All of that to come with our expert panel. Joining me in the studio are City Editor Jill Trina, alongside her our Financial Editor Nils Prattley. A warm welcome to you both. Well, it's been a whirlwind week for the Royal Bank of Scotland. As outrage greeted the news of top execs trousering million-pound bonuses at the state-owned bank, Chief Executive Stephen Hester announced he would not be taking his after all. Then, after two years as a national hate figure, the man who did so much damage to RBS and the British economy, Sir Fred Goodwin, has had his knighthood annulled, a fate he now shares with such figures as Robert Mugabe and Mussolini. Jill Trina, what should we make of it all? And what reaction have you seen um, of Goodwin's fate in the city? Well, if, uh, most of the reaction t- to Goodwin's uh, fate has, in fact, been from politicians. I mean, Alistair Darling's been very vocal in saying that, you know, it wasn't the right thing to do. In the city, we, we've got the boss of the CBI talking about the fact that it feels wrong to be demonising bankers in this way. And if you look at the other people who have been stripped of their knighthoods, they've all had, you know, they've been to court and convicted of speeding and goodness knows what. I mean, the reality is the FSA, the city regulator, the Financial Services Authority, uh, in its reporting to what went wrong at RBS, at the end of the day, didn't end up even censuring uh, Goodwin. So, you know, is it the court of popular opinion that is doing this or is it the fact that the people on the forfeiture committee were clearly very serious people felt they had no option but to do this? Nils, of course, plain old Fred Goodwin, as he'll now be known, still has a six-figure pension to console himself with. But do you think this will shake people up other knights, OBEs and lords? Will they be looking over their shoulders in the city? Uh, I don't think they will be because the government made it pretty clear that um, it thought that Fred's case was was exceptional, as the Chancellor put it. And I think it's that kind of claim that sort of gives rise to the, sort of the unease here. I mean, Fred Goodwin was the uh, was the boss of the of, of the biggest bank that um, failed, but are we just going to sort of draw the line at one person? I mean, it just seems an extremely odd principle, or sort of an absence of a principle, really. I mean, you know, if you were to look properly at uh, the number of uh, lords and knights involved in the British banking industry, it, it, banks that failed, there's quite a lot of people you could um, you could look at. You know, Sir James Crosby at um, uh, at HBOS was there, um, not at the end, but um, is deemed by quite a lot of people to have been sort of instilled the culture that allowed uh, HBOS's uh, risks to, to grow out of control. You know, we've got uh, Sir Tom McKillop was chairman of Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, he was there. He was a stout defender of the ABN AMRO deal. Clearly, he got his, uh, his knighthood for services to the pharmaceutical industry rather than the banking industry. But is that, again, is that a sort of, is, is that the principle that's in operation here, that if you get your knighthood for one thing and then mess up in another role, you can keep your or keep your gong. Uh, There's the, the just sort of confusion and absence of principle, and it seems kind of an arbitrary uh, system. And as, as Alice Darling was saying, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make for good government. The, the one thing that strikes me 
is that, you know, he's called, he was Sir Fred Goodwin until, you know, a couple of hours ago. It's quite interesting that how would this public mood have been satisfied if they didn't have a knighthood to strip Goodwin off? It's a sort of interesting debate we can have about, you know, ab- you about it's what... It's almost convenient that it was there and you could take it away and maybe that wraps things up now. I don't know. I just think it's, I just think it's quite an interesting topic. I mean, it used to be that, you know, when I started out covering the banking industry 15 years ago, I think pretty much everybody who was the chairman and chief executive of a bank was Sir Somebody. Uh, and it's quite interesting now that if I look around and at the sewers I now address at press conferences when I go to bank results, there are uh, very few of them. In fact, none. And one fewer now. Yeah, well, yeah and there's not, not many people are going to get knighthoods no. for services the banking industry. I mean, I think even Hester might struggle, uh, you know, uh, to, Actually, to so Philip Hampton, chairman of RBS, there we go. He's a... I mean, on the, on the other hand, I mean, I think, you know, this... Uh, uh, it, it's quite easy, or a bit too easy, to sort of decry a lynch mob mentality. The particularly on the bonus front, I kind of think a little bit of sort of raw uh, expression of public anger about uh, uh, about the bonuses uh, within the banking system is, is is no bad thing. You know, the uh, you know Simon Jenkins was arguing in the paper this morning that um, you know the bonus system itself is 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 is, is completely mad. You know, the you know what is wrong with paying directors of a bank just a salary and expect them to get on with the job. You know, th- they are there to do a job. You can sort of make a better argument for, uh, for, for, for for bonuses, stroke variable pay at levels beneath where profits do fluctuate. But the kind of being a director of a bank, a main board director of a bank, is a job where you should turn up and give your full effort all the time. That's what's expected of you. You know, th- introducing bonuses kind of really does muddy, muddy the waters for those people. And, and this hasn't really wrapped up the bonus argument, has it? Stephen Hester giving back his his bonus. No, because the, the same argument will, will argument. occur again next year. Because he, you know, the REM committee of uh, the, the, the the remuneration committee of RBS uh, maintains that it did the right thing in awarding the, uh, the 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 bonus, and presumably next year will 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 feel itself entitled to consider him for another bonus. But assuming it's still there. But crucially, it's not just. Uh, Hester, the chief executive of RBS, who's got bonuses due to him. There are, courtesy of new stock exchange rules, we see disclosures of people called PDMRs, Persons Disclosing Managerial Responsibility. And we can see from if you're sad enough to trawl through stock exchange announcements that there are a number of people below board level. John Hurrican, who runs the investment bank, Ellen Alamini, who runs the US operations, and a whole string of other individuals are about to potentially, at RBS, get bonuses that they rewarded three years ago and it's not just rbs it's every bank in the city and it's to neil's point about bonuses it's not just banks it's not just bank boardrooms where bonuses are paid it's right across the city it's throughout throughout industry yeah but further down the food chain do you think there'll be more pressure now on those at state-owned banks well uh, assuming everything that i'm told is true which i can only assume it is the people inside RBS are already operating under quite a different bonus culture to in other places. The Through UKFI, UK Financial Investments, which looks after our 83% stake in RBS, 45 billion when we put it in, currently 27 billion, that nobody there gets a bonus of more than £2,000 in cash. The rest is paid in subordinate something called subordinated debt, which they can trade later on in the process. So, you know, the the, the principle of bonus is supposed to be very different at that bank. 
And just generally, I mean, Gillian Tett wrote in the FT this week, the consensus among bank executives is that total pay or or what they call compensation is actually going down. Are they right in your experience and and your research into this? Well, from what I can make out, many people in the city have had salary rises. One of the things that happened post uh, the FSA rules that came in after the banking crisis is that there was this change in the way that people should be paid there should be more the idea was you'd get more of your pay deferred over a number of years you'd get more in shares but as a result of this people also were getting rises in their basic salaries Um, so bonuses might not be going up but basic salaries might that's been my understanding now with we're sort of three years post the crisis so exactly what's going on right now we'll start to find out in the next next couple of weeks because it's right now that bankers across the city are finding out what their bonuses are Well, let's leave that there. And there's plenty more on this at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. Now, according to the new Greek Prime Minister, Lucas Papademos, things are looking up. Progress is being made in his country's debt negotiations, and they will soon have a final package to offer up to the EU in return for more bailout loans. Athens needs help from the EU and the IMF to fund a bond repayment of 15 billion euros by the 20th of March, or things will get very messy indeed. Joining us here in the studio now is Alan Clark, economist at Scotiabank. Alan, is Athens well and truly in Last Chance Saloon then now? I think it is. Uh, it really does have to convince uh, the people that are lending emergency cash to it that it is worthy of the extra money or it won't be able to pay back the bonds that are maturing in the middle of March. If that happens, it's a messy default. It will probably have to leave the eurozone. So it's now or never. So you're you're saying we could actually see that leaving the Eurozone happen as soon as March? Yes, but I don't think that's likely. I think the Greek um, population government knows that it's such a bad outcome, they'll do everything to avoid it. Uh, If they do leave the Eurozone, it's no picnic. They still have 6% of their national income that they're having to borrow. No one's going to lend that to them. So if they're not happy with the sort of uh, pay cuts, pension cuts, layoffs that they're experiencing at the moment, it will be a magnitude of that uh, if they were to leave the Eurozone because no one's going to lend them money at all. And for people within the Eurozone, it's not good for Greece to leave because the contagion, the spread of fears to other countries, the losses in the banking system, that would be pretty awful as well. So I think what we'll see is in the lead up to the middle of March, there'll be more and more stress, but I don't think the worst will happen. So last chance saloon but possibly a rescue yet before that that deadline in March Um, we've had a lot of talk about haircuts recently what what do we mean by that and who's negotiating with whom and what what do you think the outcome will be so essentially if I were to hold 100 uh, euros of Greek debt I'm now looking at a loss of 70% I will only get paid back about 30 euros of of, of what I thought was previously worth 100 if there's outright default I may not get anything back at all so something's better than nothing Um, so it's essentially like like a member of uh, a boy band going with, coming in with uh, flowing locks and coming out with a crew cut. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's the haircut for anybody out there who wanted a good analogy. And do, do all these people want the same thing, all the different lenders? Are there some people more willing to, to sort of concede some ground than others? Well, some are. Some have got their poker face on and think if uh, you get the majority will, will say yes, then you'll get away with murder and you won't lose anything. So but I think nobody wants to show an, an easy option because if... They, they show a soft touch and they, oh, OK, you know, take 80% of what my Greek bonds are worth. Well, what about my holdings of Portuguese bonds or Italian bonds? So no one right, really wants worried to... about precedence. Exactly, yeah. And, and Jill, what does this all mean for bank balance sheets around Europe and, and in Britain in particular, this haircut? Well, the European Banking Authority, which is the, regu- the pan-European regulator, 
um, just before Christmas, conducted sort of mini stress tests on banks across the Eurozone and, and the banks outside the Eurozone to make sure that they had enough capital to withstand a sort of further deterioration in the Eurozone crisis. So technically, uh, if the EBA is right... Uh, banks across Europe should be fine. I mean, Santander... So they can afford this haircut. Well, Santander was one of the banks with the biggest holes and it's managed to find the 15 billion euros it was supposed to find by doing things like pulling out of businesses, flogging off a bit of assets here and there. Um, so fingers crossed, technically, it's supposed to be OK. I guess the thing that nobody can be certain of is that we still don't know exactly what's going to happen in Greece and we still don't know what the knockout impact could be across other bond markets. But you know, technically, the regulators are trying to tell everybody that the banking industry will be fine. Alan, you were talking there about what needs to happen in, in Greece, sort of at a social and political level. Um, what did you make of the story leaked at the weekend um, in the press that Germany's been calling for a budget monitor to sort of sit there colonial style in Athens and keep an eye on everything? Well, that really shouldn't be necessary. We've got rid of the uh, voted-in Prime Minister and there's a technocrat government, so they shouldn't really be caring about whether they're popular or not. They're doing the right thing by the economy on spending and, and tax decisions. So it shouldn't really be necessary to have an outsider doing that. But Greece doesn't have the best reputation of implementing, uh, collecting all of its uh, tax that's due to it and, uh, and eradicating the grey economy. So I think it's it's a flashpoint. It was angri- angrily rejected by the Greek finance minister, but you know it, it, it's a thought. Today we've got the um, closing of Lord Wolfson's £250,000 economics competition to find a solution to the crisis and allow Greece to leave the euro. Nils, a question for you. I don't know if you put in for the prize, but do you think such an elegant solution exists? Well, elegant might be pushing it a bit. Um, I, mean, I suppose sort of least ugly might be a, a better definition. And I think it's not just Greece that uh, Simon Wolfson's sort of set it for it's a sort of a, a system to allow countries to to leave the eurozone so it's not just not just um, picking on greece. greece i don't know I, I i don't know i don't know i suspect that the most um uh kind of persuasive one that i've seen is perhaps the uh the notion that um the strong countries would leave the euro uh, i so so germany netherlands finland maybe luxembourg Go you back know. To their own so currencies. you would do you so you could do it that way that 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 may uh, create least chaos in uh, in the banking system, in terms of kind of repricing of uh, of assets and liabilities, so the euro would obviously be kind of be a weaker a weaker currency. I don't, nobody's really talking in those terms, but they won't until the moment approaches. If it does, Alan, did you put in for the prize? And any thoughts? I didn't, but there's two options really. Um, the first is that Germany's too competitive, so it's preaching austerity, etc. The real solution is that Germany should be cutting taxes and inflating its economy, making itself less competitive. So it brings itself more into line with the periphery. And, um, you know, if it's got too much demand in its economy, it will sort of suck in exports from the periphery, etc. It's, sing- it's a group of almost 20 countries, but they're, they're not behaving as one. As a, as a whole, they've got lower debt to GDP than the likes of the UK, the US, and certainly Japan. You know, its deficit, its budget deficit on an annual basis is lower than most other countries. So if they behaved cohesively, you know, it's, it's not a bad area to be in. It's just there's too much dis- disparity. The other solution is put your fingers in your ears, shut your eyes and come back in 10 years. Because leading up to this, <laughs> even in the UK, we had it too good for too long. People spent too much and we've had seven years of feast and we're now in seven years of famine. So come back in seven to 10 years. Right, we'll come back to you in 10 years. <laughs> um, also this week, Alan, we've had Portugal's bond yields lengthening. And just looking at Portugal now, how bad is their situation? And might, be, might we soon be talking about a second bailout in Lisbon? 
Well, it's getting worrying. For the whole of this year, Portugal's borrowing needs are satisfied by its previous bailout package, but that doesn't um, help it out in, in 2013. And in 2013, it's probably going to come short of uh, the money that it needs by about $9 billion. With interest rates going up pretty sharply, it's not looking likely that Portugal can return to the market to ask investors for money. And if that happens, it will need to either take a haircut on its debt, uh, get another bailout. or So more new austerity. haircut talks on the horizon, possibly. And that's what we want to avoid, like the plague, because Greece supposedly was the only country that was going to face a haircut. Portugal's not a huge country, so it wouldn't be the end of the world if it, it had a haircut on its debt. But if you did have that, people would really fear about Italy, a huge bond market. And if you're starting to talk about haircuts in, in Italy or even Spain, then you know, we really could have an intensification in in, uh, in the crisis in the Eurozone. So you're sort of painting a real domino picture there of if something starts in Greece that moves to, to Portugal, could go throughout the zone. Absolutely. So I think they're trying to set up a firewall to make sure that actually we don't get this kind of contagion. So I think they will do whatever they can to make sure Portugal doesn't start taking Greece lessons, Greek lessons rather. Well, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. There's plenty more from Nilsson Jill on the Guardian website, guardian.co.uk forward slash business, but there won't be plenty more from the business podcast. Sadly, this is our last episode. Thanks for listening and for your support, but fear not, our experts will be back on the Guardian's other podcasts, videos, and much more in the future. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Katie Allen. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.